Welcome to Poetry Says, everyone. I'm Alice, and today I'm here with Lisa Brockwell, who is a poet based in Byron Bay. Lisa spent a large chunk of her adult life in England. Now she lives on a rural property near Byron Bay on the north coast of New South Wales with her husband and young son. Um, she's worked as a communications consultant in the HIV AIDS community sector and for the pharmaceutical industry. She's traveled extensively in Europe, North America, and a bit in Asia for business and for love. And she just has a new book out called Earth Girls. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Alice. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. No worries at all. Thank you. Um, having just read your book, Earth Girls, I feel like I have a really strong sense of where you live and what it's like around where you live in Byron Bay. But can you can you describe that to us, where, where your house is and what it's like around it? Oh, okay. Um, well, we live on um, 25 acres and we're not farmers. So it's an old dairy farm and, um, and it's very, very beautiful but quite remote. We're about um, 15 minutes away from the nearest small town, which is Mullumbimby. Um, and it's very beautiful. It's the tropical north coast of New South Wales. So very rainy and muddy and um, lots of um, palm trees and um and you're very beautiful and quiet and um i I'm, i think fantastic for for writing uh and yeah quite isolated and and very different to to sydney or london which are the two other places i've lived yeah i was gonna say it sounds like the perfect place to be sitting down and putting this book together um i read in an interview with you that earth girls is a result of seven years worth of work can you tell us a little bit about your own path to reading poetry and writing poetry and I'm particularly interested in any detours you might have taken any times when you kind of fell off the wagon so to speak uh-huh. <laughs> well there's been a lot of those um I you know like most teenagers wrote a lot of really bad poetry and loved poetry at school and was taught really well I went to a progressive catholic school and um I think actually the the way we were taught poetry was fantastic which I know is unusual most people most people's experience of poetry at school is is faintly horrific and mine wasn't um so that was wonderful and then I went to university and I went to UTS and um, which was actually, I mean, I don't know what the course is like now, but when I was there, it was doctrinaire, French radical, only left wing and pretty much all claptrap. I mean, I, I you know, don't look back on it fondly, um, but I was, I had the great privilege and honor of, of meeting two incredibly important people in my life there at UTS. Um, one was the writer Laura Bloom, who's, um, was became my best friend as soon as we met, and um, we still are best friends. And she has a, a new book coming out next month. And the other was Dorothy Porter, who taught me poetry for four years at UTS. And um, I was extremely you know, lucky and um, privileged to be taught by her. So that was wonderful. And I wrote poetry slightly better than my horrific teenage poetry when I was taught by Dorothy and knew that I would keep writing poetry and that I would be a poet and received some really great advice from Dorothy when I was about 21, which is that she said, you really should get out there and live a bit and experience things rather than trying to publish at that young age. And I know that some people, everyone's different, and some people are fully formed at 21 and ready to publish, and I certainly wasn't. 
And as well as not being ready with what I wanted to say in my voice and the content, I think also, I mean, I just wasn't equipped. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have a patron. I needed to go out and make a living. And also being independent was very important to me. I wanted to have a job and make my own way in the world and not be um, living completely hand-to-mouth in a way that I think a 21-year-old poet with nothing behind her would need to live. So I did go out and I went and worked at the AIDS Council for um, three or four years and that was a very formative experience right at the the um, peak of the AIDS epidemic in Australia. And then I moved to London and um, lived there for a really for a long time, for about eight years um, and had a lot of big life experiences there and started a business there, which I kept up when I moved back to Australia and, and sort of kept that going in England and travelled backwards and forwards for another eight years. So had a lot of my life centred on that. Um, and all through that time I kept reading poetry and kept my connection to poetry, but I wasn't writing so much. And there was about 15 years where I didn't really write at all, but I still read a lot um, and still read a lot of contemporary poetry, which I think is... I mean, if I was ever going to think that I could give advice to a new poet or a young poet, it would be to be reading contemporary poetry, not just one's favourite poetry books, but subscribing to magazines and reading online and reading what's coming out and what's happening now um, and staying connected to that world. Um, I made sure I always did that, even when I wasn't writing. And then uh, there was a certain time in my life when it felt like I had something to say and also had the means and the time and the space to say it. And so about 10 years ago, I started um, writing really seriously and, and it became the main thing in my life about at that time, you know, as well as juggling um, a young child and, and, and the rest of what life throws at one. But um, definitely poetry became the main thing for me about 10 years ago. I think that's such good advice about, keeping up with what's being written now um, and definitely something that I know I've I resisted at first I thought no I've got to go back and read all the classics first and don't worry about what everyone else is doing at this point but that just doesn't make sense you've got to dive in yeah and I don't think it means um, necessarily reading poetry that one doesn't um, like or have a feeling for I mean there's definitely even within the contemporary scene there's poetry that's my cup of tea and poetry that's not and you know I, I mean I do read as widely as I can but I, I certainly wouldn't torture myself with stuff that I hate um, but there's so much being written and I think yeah it really is important to um, to be a reader first um, because it, it's a huge tradition and a huge part of um, human society the world of poetry and and I mean if we want to write poetry I think we need to sort of know the tradition and, and be linked in with that lineage yeah absolutely so I'd love to know what it was like to learn with Dorothy Porter can you tell us a bit about that time yeah um, I mean I think I feel like that's one of the one of the ways I've been most fortunate um, in my poetry life being taught by by Dorothy she was just such a great teacher I think the the main thing to say about her was her passion was so um, palpable and also her sense of vocation being a poet and the way she lived that with such humour and lack of pomposity was just remarkable. Um, she was such a unselfconscious, passionate, real person. 
And there was nothing at all cool about her, which in a place like UTS is a huge relief. And she was also incredibly well-read and really steeped in the poetic tradition um, and also with a, a, a huge knowledge of, of the craft and technical skill required um, when writing poetry, which can definitely be taught. I don't think that um, that poetic talent can be taught, but the, the technical aspects of poetry can certainly be taught. And she also really introduced me to um, the joys of poetry in translation. I felt like I had some background in um, the English tradition, but through Dorothy was introduced to poets like Rilke and Lorca and Kavafi, um, Akhmatova, that Sappho, the whole um, the whole world of, of of poetry not in English and translated um, so well. And I, I know that translation can be a sort of controversial area, and I think that poetry in translation is is wonderful and a, a very rich vein. Um, of, of reading and of, of opening up different ways of, of looking at poetry and um, and sort of different ways of thinking that are not within the English language tradition. Um, so that was a you know a, a wonderful thing um, learning from her and being introduced to all of, of those poets. And I now um, I read a lot of poetry in translation and um, you know would really um, recommend that too to 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 anyone listening who doesn't read a lot of, of, of poetry in translation, I think it's wonderful to do. Yeah, that's interesting that you say it's controversial. I have never really encountered anybody arguing against poetry in translation, but can you can you tell us a little bit about that? I guess, um, I, I mean, I guess some people I think are just a little bit cautious of it, that think that, that a translation is not um, because it's, it, because it's, it's, it's not the the poem itself um, it has somehow lost something, whereas I would argue that it often gains something, particularly if it's translated by a really you know a really great poet. Um, and thinking of um, uh, quite apart from all those classics, some poetry in translation that I really love is often versions rather than uh, straight translations. So um, Don Patterson's versions of Antonio Machado are incredible in a book called The Eyes. Um, also Joe Shapcott's versions of Rilke or really responses to Rilke are fantastic as well. And I, th I think there there's definitely something being added to the poems um, as well as, as, as what was there in the original language as well. Yeah, we'd be missing out on so much, wouldn't we, if we just stuck to English English only. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And there are great journals through Modern Poetry and Translation, um, which is based in the UK, is such a fantastic journal, a magazine of, of, of poetry and translation, which was started by Ted Hughes and Daniel uh, Weisbord about 50 years ago and is now um, edited by Sasha Dugdale. And I hugely recommend that that magazine. I think it's wonderful. Well, that sounds really good. So tell us about the two poems that you've brought along today. I love it that you've picked two. It's been really interesting doing this podcast. Basically everyone who I've asked to come on has said when I've suggested that they bring just one poem that's important to them, they've said, oh, can I bring two or can I actually just talk about a book or that kind of thing. So it's really good. I love it. Well, I, yeah, I I think these two poems really speak to each other. Um, and I think they're around a similar, have a similar theme, which I think probably I'll talk about after I've read them so that I think it's important that people hear a poem before they're being you know, sort of 
suggested to what the poem's about or what it means. Um, but one's by Kathleen Jamie, the Scottish poet, uh, and the other one's a Dorothy Porter poem. So perhaps, shall I start with Kathleen Jamie? Yeah, that sounds good. Great. Um, so this poem is called Glamoury. When I found I'd lost you, not beside me, nor ahead, nor right, nor left, not your green jacket moving between the trees anywhere, I waited a long while before wandering on. No wren jinked in the undergrowth, not a twig snapped. It was hardly the wildwood, just some old farmer's shelter belt. But red haws reached out to me, and between fallen leaves, pretty white flowers bloomed late into their year. I tried calling out, or think I did, but your name shriveled on my tongue. So instead, I strolled on through the wood's good offices and duly fell to wondering if I hadn't simply made it all up. You, I mean everything, my entire life. Either way, nothing now could touch me, bar my hosts, who appeared as diffuse golden light, as tiny spiders examining my hair. What gratitude I felt then. I might be gone for ages, maybe seven years. And such sudden joie de vivre that when a ditch gaped right there, instantly, in front of me, I jumped it, blithe as a girl. Ach, I jumped clear over it, without even pausing to think. And then the second poem is called Caesarea by Dorothy Porter. The Mediterranean lifts its barnacled blue arm and throws you a Roman coin. It isn't beautiful, neither are you. But you pray its sea-ruffed emperor will somehow benignly see you through. The gold melt moon, the aroma of gritty 6am Turkish coffee. Harsh, warm Hebrew pounding the air like a confounding family squabble. The marooned marble column on which you dry your shabby old towel. This glittering port city, a sophisticated paradise where Pontius Pilate thirsted for the humanity of face-saving lives. You are only 18 but thousands of years of brackish biblical history sweep into you and catch like a thousand sharp glass beads. Sometimes a new place has the ferocity of a gale, ripping the calm off a safe harbour, making the drowned bells peal hallelujah for all your future false prophets and glorious glorious lost gods such a great combination they, they work well together don't they they're such different moods um but i think i mean i think they're both poems sort of about the girl in the poet and the poet in the girl and what i love about them is that in both poems girlhood is a place of strength not a place of weakness or vulnerability it's a a sort of place of truth, um, and I think that it's it's sort of, it's unusual for um, there to be a poem with a strong 
woman protagonist who is looking back at girlhood or, or, or reaching into girlhood in a way that um, is claiming the self and, and being strong and being totally alone too. In, in both poems, um, the poets are experiencing a, a really strong sense of enchantment and a sense of place, but they're totally alone. They're not in relation to a lover, um, any other at all, no child, uh, no man, no woman. There's, there's nobody there but themselves and their sense of self, um, which really appealed to me. Yeah, I can definitely see that in the Porter poem, for sure. She's The setting is the Mediterranean, and she it definitely feels like she's alone. The speaker is alone there. In the um, Kathleen Jamie poem, there was a line that kind of threw me. She says, either way, nothing now could touch me bar my hosts. And that felt like not only the turn in the poem, but it sort of felt like... Um, somebody else appeared but am I misreading that or what's what do you think is happening there I I think that's um a sort of reference to the fairy folk to I think I think in lots of ways glamoury is sort of um referring to those sort of old ballads and um particularly those old sort of Scottish border ballads um where somebody goes into the forest and is enchanted um, and, and ends up being away for seven years. And so the, the hosts I see as being sort of the fairy folk or the, um, the sort of spirits of the place. Um, and I, it's interesting. I, I think with Glamour, it's particularly interesting that she's walking in a wood alone. Um, and it reminds me, I mean, she's sort of, it's a midlife poem. She's, she's talking about um, sort of looking back at girlhood and um, having, you know, her the, the person that she's with who I assume is her partner um losing him and not um and and feeling like she's sort of dreamed her whole life so going back to girlhood being alone being at midlife so there's a little bit of a um a hint and an echo of, of Dante too going into the the forest and being mezzo del Camin in the middle of his life and instead of um finding a guide finding Virgil in this poem Kathleen Jamie loses her guide or her companion and is alone. And also instead of that becoming something sort of gothic, I mean, we're not far from, um, we're in Scotland, but we're not far from the Yorkshire Moors and Heathcliff and Kate Bush and, you know, the whole gothic experience. But instead of that, it's actually a positive experience and, and it's light, it's not gothic. Um, she thinks, wow, maybe I've dreamed my whole life. Maybe I'll be here for seven years. And she feels as blithe as a girl and embraces that experience, you know, jumps over the ditch, doesn't... Um, pull back from it so it when I first read this poem it really appealed to me in a sort of oh I'd like to do that I'd like to you know throw the whole lot over my shoulder and jump over the ditch myself um and I, I really enjoyed that it's it's light and I think the porter poem is actually a bit darker um so I think they they play off each other well in that way too yeah I'm starting to see it now when I first read the the Jamie poem I have to admit, I sort of it ended a little bit flat for me because I just wasn't following the action. Um, I think I got too attached to the first half of the poem where she's lost her partner, and I was wondering what was going to happen from there. But you're right; she just she throws it all away, and then she's really excited by that. In the second to last stanza, "I might be gone for ages, maybe seven years," ends with an exclamation mark and a dash. She's she's free. She's excited. Yes, yeah. yeah. 
But and when she jumps the ditch, she doesn't even think. So she's sort of put behind her even thought and, and just jumped into something, some other state of being, a sort of enchanted state of being. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's lovely. I'm, I'm seeing it a lot clearer now. But with the, the Porter poem, which I felt like I understood a lot more immediately, um, it does end on a darker note. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I I love the darker note that it ends on. I think it is that, I think it's some. Um, I mean, it's no um, coincidence that there's a reference to Pontius Pilate too, to this idea of, um, as well as an idea of of being eighteen and and finding connection with her ancestry and and with the whole of biblical history. I mean, Caesarea was a incredibly important city for the Romans in Jewish history and in Christian history. So it, it's it's hugely important. Um, as well as sort of feeling that as an 18-year-old, I think she's also feeling, she's visiting and, 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 and feeling her future and the future being um, a place of compromise and a place of losing belief in some areas and um, having wonderful things happen but also embracing loss and transience and all the, all the darkness that life also entails. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, we get the reference to Pontius Pilate and and the humanity of face-saving lives. And I love that that word humanity that's used there. It's not um, Pontius Pilate and, you know, hypocritical face-saving lies or terrible. It's the humanity of face-saving lies. Those sorts of lies are needed sometimes. Um, and, and as well as um, have acknowledging false prophets at the end there's also glorious glorious lost gods which is a, a very um, beautiful and poignant ending yeah that couplet glorious glorious lost gods i just immediately got sent back to being in my late teens early 20s in canberra and just yeah just just those times when everything does feel feel glorious but um it's sort of dreamlike now uh yeah it just i don't know she just managed to to sum up a whole period of my life with just with two lines it's pretty crazy I, it's amazing isn't it so um yeah. so pithy and and you know i look at that and think of 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 looking back at life towards the end of one's life and and seeing all the things that one might have believed in at a certain point and then decided to let go of yeah as well right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can we just talk about the amazing use of kind of internal rhyme and alliteration? I feel like Porter's a master of this, like just yes. untouchable. So the third stanza, the gold melt moon already, just ridiculously good. The aroma of gritty 6 a.m. Turkish coffee and then harsh, warm Hebrew pounding the air like a confounding family scrobble. I mean... What do you do? What do you it's do? very, very beautiful and very um, and that incredible musicality that she always has, um, where the, exactly the internal rhyme and rhythm, and and as I read this myself in a you know, no way near the way that she would read it, I can hear her voice and how she would have read this poem, although I never heard her read this poem, but just her incredible delivery and performance, which was a, a huge feature of, of um, what she had to offer as well as being such an incredible writer. Yeah, I read recently that she was actually trained in acting a little bit 
as well as being a poet. Um, and I never got to hear her read, but there's a photo of her up in the um, in the bookshop, poetry bookshop in Melbourne called Collected Works. And I always look at that photo and think, oh, I really wish I'd been able to see her in real life. But yeah. Brackish biblical history is a lovely um, example of that alliteration and internal rhyme too. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely circled that one as well. So this poem is just covered covered in scribbles, um, <laughs> and also just the accumulation. As it's something that Porter does that I absolutely love is she just kind of piles um, images on top of images without making any kind of statement necessarily so the gold mount moon the aroma of gritty 6am turkish coffee harsh warm hebrew pounding the air like a confounding family squabble then you've got the marooned marble column on which you dry your shabby old towel this glittering port city a sophisticated paradise i guess a sophisticated paradise is a bit of a um declaratory statement but yeah she doesn't necessarily feel the need to say, here's an image and here's what I think about it. She just kind of gives you all these images to work with. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, a little bit like um, a sort of painterly technique in that way, The just sort of putting the images there and then, um, I, and then I think beautifully tying it together at the end um, with, the, with the alleluia and really diving into... Um, a, a sort of biblical way of talking about what the experience means to her. So, so using some of the images from earlier and letting them pay off at the end. And I think she always has remarkable endings to her poems, which is a, another a real feature of, of being such a, a fantastic dramatic writer that her endings are, are, are usually, you know, magnificent. Yeah, yeah. And by contrast, I guess. Kathleen Jamie's is a bit more story-like. It's a bit kind of beginning, middle, end, um, which is not to say it's somehow lesser because of that. But, yeah, she's she's using a different kind of technique to tell the same sort of story of a journey. You've got loss, sort of an acceptance in the middle there, and then moving on into that kind of freedom at the end. Yeah, and I think it's more, um, I mean, I think Jamie's poem is more in the sort of balladic tradition. So it's in it's in ballad form, it's in quatrains, and the meter is sort of uh, um, a ballad meter, sort of as a nod to those ballads that I think she's referencing um, in that kind of poem that it is. Um, whereas I think Dorothy, you know, Dorothy's relationship with form is a lot freer, um, generally. Yeah, right. Can we... Um, hear a little bit from Earth Girls now. So the poem that you've chosen to read um, is one of the, the ones that has actually got the fewest scribbles on it from me just because I kind of felt like there was nothing really to say in response <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. So I got this book to review a couple of couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I think, um, and it's... First, first thing to say is it's a really beautifully put together book, which is really important. I think it's a really lovely yes. object. Yeah, and that's um, you know, John and Lindsay Knight at Pitt Street Poetry, who I think are fabulous publishers and have really invest a lot in making poetry books beautiful objects, which I think I think is really important too. It's lovely to have a beautiful book, and um, so I'm very grateful to them for for um, doing such a wonderful job with that. Yeah, because it doesn't always happen. You don't always know 
how a book is going to turn out when it lands with you at the end. Yes. Yeah. But I was saying to you earlier before we started that having read it, I feel like I know a lot about your life and I feel like I, I know you as a person, but it's not a confessional book necessarily. Uh, it's more like maybe like a photo album. There's this, this sense of family and place and a personal history, but also a local history of where you live now, which is really great. Um, and I'll ask you a bit about that later, but let's hear this one that you've chosen. Okay, so I, I've chosen um, a poem which I think sort of, I mean, I've chosen it because I think it fits in with the genre of the two poems that I chose, um, being that sort of poem about sense of self and um, and it's looking back at a, a time in my life when I was very young and I just moved to London, so it's that sort of girlishness looking back at that. Um, and it's also a little bit of a, a nod to Louis McNeese's poem, Snow. It's called Ode to Snow, Falling on the YWCA, Kemplay Road. The first time is rarely so good. In bed with a book, in my warm, clean room, the paint still fresh and white. I was not a woman in love. I was someone fallen off the back of the love truck. That's when I saw it, snow falling on my day-to-day -day life. Nose to the double glazing, I looked over the back, where all the flat conversions in this block relaxed and took their corsets off. Concrete corrals of rubbish bins, disused sheds, bags of ancient potting mix. Each forgotten thing now seemed to glow, like a scene from an Edwardian Christmas card, the one sent by my great aunts. This is England, I would think, running my nine-year-old fingers over white glitter a horse-drawn carriage dusted like mint cake. The newly invented middle class glimpsed through a lit window, a family happy under their tree. I longed to be inside that room. No one screaming, no one going under. Everyone so nicely dressed, their faces raised to the glass in old-fashioned wonder. This room was the gift of some distant benefactress. I wore it carefully, daring to believe the sheen of it against my skin. I had searched the phone book for somewhere to live and found in Hampstead a street oblivious with wealth, harboring this hostel for young women. Newly arrived from the Commonwealth, like me, or trailblazers from Poland, one girl from Lancashire and one from Scotland. A double row of doorbells, each one mothering a name. A tall girl from Jamaica took three stone steps in her stride and opened the door with her own key. The morning light strengthened slowly into something almost holy. The snow kept falling, coating everything with silence, a softening. I sat and watched until all I could see was singing in understated harmony. Rooftops plated with marzipan, trees in elaborate lace, the path pocked with a killing cold, so beautiful to be inside. No roses in my room, I couldn't afford them yet. But the snow was my best advocate. There is beauty in waiting, it lightly said. Meanwhile, this window is yours. There is beauty in waiting. So good. Yeah, I just, I don't know, it just, 
it's just all there. There's, there's, there's nothing to say. Um, but I, there are just some incredible phrases in this, like someone falling off the back of the love truck. That's so good. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it definitely echoes the Porter poem, I think, um, in the sense of you're young, you've gone off into this, this new environment and suddenly, yeah, you've got this, this new perspective on everything. Yeah, um, that's well, I'm flattered, you know, that it echoes the Porter poem in any way. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, I, I think, um, one thing I, w- I was very much trying to do was to um, write a poem uh, just about that sort of formation of the self, which I think for women, yeah, it's a, it's a remarkably new thing in poetry to have um, poems written from that sense of, of, of self. Um, for so many hundreds and thousands of years, women have been either ornamental or symbolic in poems. And um, even, and, and this poem um references Louis McNeese's very famous poem about roses and snow. Um, and, I mean, even in most of his poems, and I love Louis McNeese, but I look at his poems and most of them, apart from the love poems, which are just incredible and remarkable, and talk about women as though they're individuals and um, they're, they're beautiful poems. In all of his other poems, women end up being symbolic or ornamental as well. And so that's just been the way it's been for so long. Um, I think it's it's easy to forget that it hasn't been that long. It's only been a couple of hundred years and only sporadically that women have been the, the subject and the self in poetry rather than the object. Yeah, I have that realisation periodically too. It's actually been a very short time, relatively speaking. Can I ask a little bit about the writing of this poem or even just your writing process in general? Sure, it, absolutely. Yeah. Is it a question of lots and lots of drafts or writing one draft and leaving it for a few months or how do you sort of approach something like this? Um, I th- I, for each poem it seems different but I, I do write a lot of drafts and generally I write early drafts really quickly and then um, it's sort of like a process of sculpting, of getting rid of a lot of bump and um, allowing and finding what the real thread of the poem is and wants to be and then following that so there's usually a lot that comes very quickly and um, you know 50 to 80 percent of it just goes Um, and then I'm left with a few lines that then take quite a long time to to build up Um, and it is different for every poem some poems come very quickly and they're so welcome and it happens so rarely and a lot of poems take a long time. I think this poem took kind of probably two years, probably, and um, and some poems in the book took, you know, six or seven years and others came very quickly, but they're very rare. Yeah, yeah. I like what you say about kind of the, the carving away of what's unnecessary. I think I can hear that particularly in the lines, a double row of doorbells, each one mothering a name, a tall girl from Jamaica took three stone steps in her stride and opened the door with her own key. There's um, a simplicity in that and a directness that's, I, I don't know, when I read that, I think there probably would have been thousands of other ways to tell that little story within a story, but you've just cut away everything that's unnecessary and what you're left with is just really beautiful. Oh, thank you. And yes, and it does. It. 
And this poem took a long time. And I think more personal ones tend to take longer too because there's a lot of, you know, psychological garbage to get rid of as well. Um, whereas poems that are um, less personal maybe don't take as long, but I, that's probably not true. I mean, I've probably just made that up. Um, no, but I, I am trying to – sorry, sorry, Alice, you go on. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with that. I think um, basically the personal poems – that I try to write are often the ones that I abandon because I just think, look, you're just too too close to this. You can't tell what's good and what's bad because you're like desperately attached to this one line and it's actually terrible. So <laughs> I definitely know what you mean. I think dramatic monologues are really great um, for that reason because there's so much that can be said when one takes on a character. Um, and I definitely like to write more dramatic monologues. I really like the form. Um, of being able to to really get to the truth through a character, sort of like a novelist does with a novel, rather than, um, I mean, the the sort of poetic eye, you know, is is tricky. It's one can say that one is not the eye, and sometimes it's obvious that one is not, but there is always a fuzzy line, and it's it makes it much more difficult, I think. So I, I really like dramatic monologues for that. Um, so this is a poem about living in London at a young age. I'm wondering in your time in London what it was that you learnt about poetry in particular or maybe just writing in general. Wow, that's a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's hard for me um, because, like, like I was saying, I think before we went on air, because I lived there for so long and, um, I, I mean, I lived there for eight years and then was sort of based there for work for another eight years off and on. Um, I mean, I had so many life experiences there that it's very hard to disentangle um, you know, I, I just basically had, you know, m most of my 20s and half of my 30s there. So, and, you know, got married and um, bought a flat and started a business and all those things happened while I was there. So, I, that's tricky. But I think, um, and I think it was necessary for me to, to leave Australia and to go away, um, to sort of get out from under my family and my idea about who I thought I was. Um, and I think that living away really helped with that and starting um, sort of helped with that process of individuation, which feels like for me took a really long time. And some people, you know, just uh, sort of like that at 21. And I certainly wasn't. It took me a long time. Um, and I think also that the, the poetry world in the UK is, um, is a very broad church and a broader church than it is in Australia. And I think that's very beneficial for a writer, for a poet, to be exposed to a lot of different schools of thought and um, political viewpoints about poetry. And um, there, I think there's more that's acceptable and less of just one or two schools of thought as there are here, I think. Um, I think it's becoming less so here. I think that the the big fights that went on in the 70s and 80s are becoming less relevant, thank God, because they were never relevant anyway. They're very much knife fights in a phone booth <laughs> with the level of poetry, <laughs> resources and money in Australia. But, I mean, that's often the way. So I think that's a great thing about the UK. There's There's more... There's more happening, more going on, and um, it is a much broader church. So it, it felt like there was more space there. Yeah. And so that sort of brings me to my next question about now living in Byron Bay, living away from a major city like Sydney or London. What are your thoughts on how that isolation works as a poet? Is it a bonus or is it more of a hindrance to be away from the scene, quote-unquote? 
I think it's always good to be away from the scene. <laughs> I think <laughs> scenes are no good. <laughs> I think that they breed groupthink and um, and people being more interested in who one knows rather than what one's writing. Um, and really, I mean, of course, networking is important on one level, but not really. What's important is what one writes and, you know, writing and sending work out and um, that can be done from anywhere, particularly now, particularly being in such a um, sort of easily networked world where it's possible to have correspondence with people around the world instantaneously. So, you know, one can send one's poems to any country and get a response within an hour. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, I find it really good for me to be away from a scene. I don't like scenes and um, and I'm really introverted, so I like being um on my own and in my own head. Um, although, you know, I do go a bit crazy and I need to get out and get off the leash every now and then, which I do. Um, that could also be being young, at home with a young child as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think it's good to be um, to be sort of a bit isolated. What do you think, Alice, in your experience? Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say all that. I read an article in um, Kill Your Darlings a couple of years ago, maybe not quite that long, um, just about, just writing about how Melbourne and Sydney are kind of these centres of gravity for writing in Australia and people in regional areas feeling very left out of the scene, not getting accepted, things like that. And um, part of of the motivation for doing a podcast like this and and uh, t- talking to people who aren't necessarily in those major centres is, yeah, just, I guess, trying to bridge those gaps if, the, if those gaps are there. But as you say, you can just send your poems from anywhere to anywhere. But I definitely operated under the myth for a good decade in Canberra that I was in the wrong place. And now I regret that because I wasted a lot of time. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's good. It's good to hear you say all that. Um, before we finish, I think we have to have a very important discussion about the TV show Looking, which <laughs> has been billed as the, uh, the, uh, the queer world's answer to girls. Um, oh no, the queer world's answer to sex in the city. Yeah, I think that's more appropriate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a lot it's it's not alienated like girls, it's sincere and fun like sex in the city. Yes, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. So what what was it that you discovered watching looking um about looking in poetry? Well, I, d- I mean, I discovered that I'm a lot more like Patrick than I would like to think. I think Patrick at his age, I was a lot like that at that age, you know, just a disaster, although I didn't make that terrible speech that he made. But sorry, that's a very in-joke. In and people, <laughs> everyone listening to this podcast should go out and watch the whole of Series 1 and Series 2 of Looking. Um, but Patrick quotes Walt Whitman all the way through looking um, and is obviously shows that the writers love Walt Whitman, who I know you love very much Alice from your podcast Um, and not only quotes it but he responds emotionally to to Walt Whitman so when Walt Whitman's read out at um, his friend Doris's father's funeral you know Patrick gets hysterical so it's very very beautiful to see poetry embedded in a in a contemporary television show so beautifully that's so cool I don't think I've seen enough of series two I'm gonna have to go back and check that out Oh, um, I should. It should be a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Just spoiler saying that alert. about Doris's father. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, 
yeah, when we were chatting about this, I was saying Walt Whitman is a bit like my poetry spirit animal. And you said that yours is perhaps controversially Ted Hughes. Can, yes. Can you tell us, tell listeners why Ted Hughes might be a controversial spirit animal and, and why he means so much to you? Well, I mean, his poetry means the world to me. I've always loved Ted Hughes's poetry. And I think, um, I, I mean, I think he was just absolutely a genius. And I th- he's my spirit animal because he wrote for 50 years. He was um, often unfashionable, often vilified. Um, and he wrote brilliant poetry, good poetry, bad poetry, indifferent poetry, terrible poetry. And he kept publishing it and just kept doing it. And took up so much space. I mean, I really, I want to be more like that, to, to have that kind of incredible masculine entitlement. And he just took up space and had huge appetites in every way and went with them. And, you know, I would like to not cause chaos, but I want to be more sort of entitled and um, passionate. And I think he, he did that. And as well as doing that, wrote incredible poetry. So a lot of his poetry lives in my head and um, I carry it around with me. And I know that that's true for thousands of readers, that he was definitely the genuine, real thing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think it's a controversial choice, of course, because there's a lot of um, sort of, you know, a lot of, judgment and ideas about his personal life um but i think as a a a poet um i mean he's incomparable to me and and his sort of earthiness and the way that the animal world and the elemental world is so important to him and um and he's just so unfashionable which i always love someone who who doesn't really mind um what others think of him and i think that's an understatement for him for you know so much of his life um, was hounded and vilified, um, but kept producing and producing prolifically. Uh, He's just an amazing poet. Yeah, it's an endless question for me that I love turning over in my mind is how much does the personal life of any artist matter in terms of appreciating their work? And I don't think there's any easy answer to that at all. No, it's a, it's a, um, I mean, it's a, a kind of big question, and and it de- I my point of view on it, of course, depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about Ted Hughes, I don't care. If you're talking about Ezra Pound, I care massively. So it's totally individual and um, completely judgmental and subjective, as all of those sorts of things are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lisa. Thank you, Alice. Thank you very much for having me, and I really love your podcasts, and I'm enjoying listening to all of them. So thank you so much for doing them. Oh, no worries. Thanks so much. And, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. You can chat to me on Twitter at Poetry Says. You can find more episodes at PoetrySays.com. You can rate me on iTunes if you feel the need. And, yeah, if you are a poet or if you're someone who just loves poetry, you don't have to have written poetry, get in touch, come and chat to me about your favourite poem. <laughs>